Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. We're so glad to have you along. I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. Came together on Thanksgiving Day with the family. Had a great time. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving as well. But we're here in Tallahassee. We'll be here through the weekend. On Sunday, I'll be at the Northwoods Baptist Church, Capitol Circle here in Tallahassee. 10.45 in the morning, 6 in the evening for a Q&A, and then 7 o'clock for the final service of a one-day prophecy conference here in Tallahassee, Florida. If you're in the area, love to have you come and join with us. We have a lot in store for you. David Dolan is standing by. David normally gives us our Middle East news update. We do that in about one segment. I want to talk with David for two segments today because there's so much to talk about as it relates to the ceasefire and then the other activities happening in the Middle East as well. So keep that dial set right where it is. We'll also be talking with Itamar Marcus, see what the Palestinians are saying about the ceasefire. Winky Madad will give us an in-depth in analysis of all that's happening there in Israel. Dr. Rob Congdon with our European Union update. And then Jim Jr. will join me here in the studio, a little bit of a prophecy Q&A. So keep the dial set right where it is. You've got information coming your way that you need to know. David Dolan has served as a journalist in the Middle East for about 30 years. He's written several books on the subject. He actually is the expert on Hamas. He wrote about Hamas becoming a major power in the Middle East long before anybody even knew how to spell Hamas. And David, with you at this microphone with us, I'm excited about hearing what you may have to say as it relates to the ceasefire. Talk to us, first of all, overall big picture. At this point, the ceasefire is still holding between the Israelis and the Palestinians, in particular Palestinians in the Gaza Strip area, Hamas is who we're focusing on. But do you think this, uh, this ceasefire is going to continue to hold? And if not, how long will it stay in place? Jimmy, I do think it will probably hold, and there's several important reasons for that. Uh, this may well have been a test uh, sponsored by Iran, as many believe, uh, to test Israel's Iron Dome anti-missile system. How extensive is it? How successful might it be? It had never been tested in anything but sporadic rocket fire before, not sustained daily barrages like we saw for actually 11 days, because three days before the Israeli uh, Army and Air Force and Navy went into action, uh, these bombardments had already began. So um, if it was a test, it proved very successful. Uh, Israel's Iron Dome intercepted, as you know, 80% of the rockets that the computer systems deemed were heading towards built-up areas. In other words, it didn't even bother to fire at rockets that were projected to go into open fields, et cetera. And first of all, it costs a lot of money, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to fire these anti-missile rockets every time they're fired. So uh, that was one consideration. But why go after those that aren't uh, harming civilian populations? But of the 300-plus rockets that were, it took out 80% of them. Now, that's not 100%. That's pretty good. Uh, well, so the test has been done. That's A. B., the Israeli Air Force in particular really pummeled Hamas targets, and not just military targets, although most of them were. They blew up arms depots. They, they bombed the rocket sites themselves, in many cases stockpiles of rockets. But they also hit uh, Hamas police posts, Hamas government positions. Even the office of the prime minister was struck 
the security center in Gaza City that Hamas dominates was struck. Uh, a television tower where a leading Islamic jihad activist was hiding, thinking he would be protected. They pinpoint hit that second story of that building after warning the journalists to get out of it and uh, got that uh, Islamic jihad leader. Of course, it began with the uh, targeted assassination of the Hamas military leader, Jabari. So they got a lot of targets there. Uh, and of course, civilians were killed and injured, as even the U.N. and foreign correspondents reported. Hamas was firing these rockets often next to schools in built-up neighborhoods, civilian neighborhoods, next to mosques, etc. They didn't hit any mosques. They were careful not to do that, knowing that would inflame the Islamic world. Uh, the Navy struck very accurately at a number of targets. So the Israeli army believes, and the Israeli government, that they really did a number on Hamas. So they, they had enough, in other words. They don't want it to continue. On the Israeli side, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu has an election in just two months' time. It's now less than two months' time. And um, while he knows, and the opinion survey showed, a strong support for the operation, and even 70% saying they did not want it to end before a ground operation, yet he knew a ground operation would have led to dozens, if not hundreds, of Israeli military casualties. Um, and a lot of grieving families would be in the news, etc., and um, um, it, it would, uh, of course, further inflame the Islamic world and possibly the Western world that, for the most part, President Obama, uh, the, the Brits, the French, etc., did support Israel's right to defend itself and to go in as far as they did. So Netanyahu thought, okay, that's enough for now. Let's have the elections. And one of his platforms, as you know, Jimmy, is that I have never presided as prime minister over the initiation of any war. And that is the case. And he's been prime minister now for over seven years. If you combine his two terms, he will soon become the second large, uh, longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. So he wanted to keep running on that record. So I think on both sides, there's strong motivations to keep the quiet, at least for now. Well, however, Dave, there are a lot of people saying that Prime Minister Netanyahu made a mistake by not sending forth that ground operation that Hamas is really not totally wiped out. They're going to have to be dealt with. Even the foreign minister, Avigdor Lieberman, said ultimately someplace down the line you're going to have to go in with a ground operation. So in your opinion and all of your experience covering everything that happens in Israel, you don't believe he made a mistake or do you believe he made a mistake by not sending in the ground operation? I think what he did was, was absolutely brilliant. Jimmy, I, maybe I'll get, get a card from him if I say that, but... Um, I've interviewed uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I've spoken with him. We have some mutual friends. I think he's one of Israel's greatest leaders. I think this was just the right approach at this time because, again, people are saying that. But had the uh, army gone in, there would have been dozens, if not hundreds, of Israeli military casualties. And, you know, that always produces uh, a backlash on its own. So um, I think there's that. And then there would have been... White House and, and the State Department and everybody else carping on them, as happened four years ago when Ehud Olmert, Netanyahu's predecessor, sent in ground forces. There would be the U.N. screaming. The international media would be focusing on Palestinian civilian casualties, because in a ground operation there's bound to be a lot more of those, as it was, the Palestinians say, uh, around half of the casualties, the 163 killed on their side, were civilians. The Israelis admit many were killed, but again, they point out these rockets were being fired from next door to civilian areas. So there's bound to be some casualties. But I think he did 
he did the right thing for the for this time. Now, after he's reelected, uh, we'll probably see a major military attack upon Iran. That will involve Hezbollah. Hezbollah has already said they'll get into it, and probably Hamas will again step in. Well, at that point, uh, then Israel could go in on the ground. But Jimmy, getting rid of Hamas or, or defeating Hamas. That's now nearly an impossibility. Uh, as you mentioned, I predicted this group would go, grow from being a little tiny group when it was founded in 1988, a fringe Islamic group, to being a major player in this conflict. Well, it is a major player. It does control Gaza. Its tentacles are extremely deep in the Gaza Strip. They supply all the medical needs for the people. The, the whole governmental system revolves around them. So to uproot them is much more than to just go in and get some of their military positions, you would really have to, um, you'd have to have hundreds of thousands of troops go in, and, and, and even then, uh, what would result afterwards? So it's, uh, it's not an easy formula. I think he just wanted to neutralize the Mosses rockets for now so that when that Iranian campaign comes up, uh, they will be far less of a threat. Israel won't have to deal so much with, with its southern front, and Egypt apparently will stay fairly quiet in such an event, and I think that was the the main goal, of course, the immediate goal was to stop the rocket firing. And again, Israel did not initiate this. It was Hamas that opened fire on Israel three days before the Israelis responded. So that has to be kept in mind. In fact, 80 rockets, Jimmy, were fired uh, in those three days before the ground, ground operation began. And I checked the stats, Jimmy, since January 2011. There was not one month that went by without at least one rocket coming out of Gaza. A couple months, there was just one, but most months there were multiple firings, and in several months there were hundreds of rockets fired. So uh, this has been going on a long time, and it was, it was time to at least uh, strongly dent their capabilities, and that's what happened. Meanwhile, and David, we only have about a minute left in this segment, uh, but in the Gaza Strip, Hamas having victory parades and all types of celebrations, that's totally propaganda, is it not? Well, Jimmy, in the Six-Day War, the Arab world was out celebrating their great, astounding victory over Israel because their media was telling them that was what was happening. Well, in the end, they found out, hey, we lost this war. 73, they had a great victory. In the end, they found out, oh, not quite so. Um, The people of Gaza are not stupid, and they will realize that a lot of damage has been done to Hamas and to its infrastructure. Of course, you know, anything that isn't an outright Total defeat, they count as a victory. Hezbollah was the same in 2006. They won the campaign. Well, they survived, in other words. Uh, Well, they did survive Hamas, and they can celebrate that. But, no, there's no great victory there. We're going to take a break uh, and continue this conversation in our next segment with David Dolan. Just ahead also, Itamar Marcus. He heads up Palestinian Media Watch. These are the people that monitor the Palestinian media, both electronic and print media. I want to see what Hamas is saying to their people. Of course, David has just given us indication that uh, the Arab world celebrates every loss they have and trying to change the mindset of those who would like to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. So that is the case, and it'll be interesting if you can eavesdrop on that conversation with Itamar Marcus. He'll bring to the table what the Palestinian media is really saying. As I said, we'll take a break. When we come back, I want to talk with David a bit about some of the other activities happening throughout the Middle East. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand like Daniel where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298 or visit us at schoolofprophets.org The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here in Temporary Studios in Tallahassee, Florida. We're going to have a conversation with Jim Jr., our son. He's doing a documentary on the location of the Garden of Eden. We also have filmed another documentary in Rome. We'll be talking with him about that. It's the revival of the Roman Empire we're documenting and also the part that religion plays in the end times. And from Rome, Italy, that's the location where the false church is going to be located. So it's going to be a very important documentary. I'll talk with Jim when we get together in the fourth segment here on Prophecy Today. As promised, we're going to have a continuation of our conversation with Dave Dolan. He's the man who has been covering, as a journalist, over 30 years the entire Middle East. Lived a period of time in Lebanon. Most of his time in Jerusalem has traveled into every location in the Middle East. I remember a trip we had to to Petra together a couple of years ago. So I know he knows the region, and that's why we go to him on the situations. Uh, uh, David, uh, when we were talking about the ceasefire there in the, the Gaza Strip between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the new president, the Muslim president of Egypt, Mohammed Morsi, he headed up, it was a key player in the Muslim Brotherhood, which birthed Hamas, and you've told us that before. But uh, he played a key role in bringing about this ceasefire. What do you think this is going to do for him? I know since that time he has announced to the Egyptians he's taken over basically uh, a, a, a dictatorial type of rule of the Egyptians' people. What do you think uh, about how Morsi's going to play into what's to follow? 
Jimmy, I think he's uh, he did play an important role, no question about it, as Egypt has in the past under Hosni Mubarak in terms of mediati- mediating between uh, Hamas and Israel indirectly always it is, and it was this time as well. The Israelis did not meet face-to-face with anyone from Hamas. They met with the Egyptians, who were then meeting with the Hamas people and, and back and forth. Uh, he did do that, and he was commended by Hillary Clinton and others for that. However, I think in this case, he's overplayed his hand. Um, basically, Egypt has a pretty strong judiciary in particular uh, that was established over the years of the Mubarak rule. Um, it's pretty fair and impartial. The judges are well-educated and well-versed in the law. And basically, these decrees just bypass them. They say that um, Morsi and his Muslim Brotherhood party can... Um, set up the new constitution without judicial review. Uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, basically saying Hamas has a free hand to write whatever they want, uh, put in whatever laws they want, and nobody's going to be able to challenge it. Well, the legal system is up in arms over that, and actually today in Alexandria, the second largest city, the judges went on strike. They're holding a protest strike, not going to work, not making any rulings, etc., not hearing any cases. Uh, that's an indication that he's got a major, a major opposition there. Of course, the Coptic Christians have been demonstrating, and demonstrating, and many uh, more moderate Muslims have been out in Tahrir Square and other places demonstrating against this move. Um, and also, as I've been pointing out all along, the Egyptian military—they are the core of any country in terms of its power and its influence. Morsi does not control them. They are Western. Back, uh, the U.S. has been training their officers for years now, ever since the Soviets were kicked out in the mid-'70s by Anwar Sadat, and um, they want to keep that U.S. funding coming in, and they know that will be cut off, as Senator Lindsey Graham very sternly warned uh, uh, Morsi last weekend in a TV interview in the States. He said, look, we're, we in the Congress are not ready to keep funding Egypt if they uh, turn radical here, if they don't keep the peace with Israel, if they don't play a helpful role in the events over there, we're going to pull the plug. So um, Morsi, I think, is feeling his oats a little bit. He thinks he's a little bit stronger than he really is. But these two walls, the judiciary and the military, are going to stand against him if he really keeps on this path. And um, we may, unfortunately, see more violence in the streets of Egypt as a result of that. But the Muslim Brothers have not taken over the entire country just the uh, one branch of government, and they have to keep that in mind. And well, and when you think about the Muslim Brotherhood, let me continue along that line. The Iranians are courting both Egypt and trying to keep that connection with the Muslim Brotherhood in place. At the same time, they're courting the Jordanians and King uh, Abdullah over there. And, and really, the Muslim Brotherhood is probably going to be causing some real problems for the monarchy in Jordan. Uh, what about that mix? What do you see happening in that area? Well, that has always been um, a great fear for the Israelis. Obviously, uh, seeing Egypt fall into Muslim Brotherhood hands was, was extremely grave. Uh, the largest Arab country, culturally the main influence, etc. But Jordan, physically, as you know, and as you said, you and I went in there together to Petra, and you've been in many times, uh, Jordan shares the longest border with Israel of any Arab country by far. It's over 200 miles long, and um, 
you know, I can see Amman, Jordan, from my window in Jerusalem. It's just 30 miles away. So if that country falls to um, the Muslim Brothers, uh, the Hamas wing that's operating there, it would be a disaster for Israel, a grave threat. Uh, missiles could be fired from there to Jerusalem uh, at a much shorter distance than from even the Gaza Strip. So uh, the Israelis obviously don't want to see that happen. And of course, the peace treaty would be abrogated. But the Muslim Brothers and Hamas are very strong in Jordan. And the protests we've been seeing over the past few weeks over increasing fuel and food prices, uh, this made necessary by the fact that uh, Jordan has no oil reserves, unlike most of the Arab countries around it. They have uh, uh, three or four million people, um, four million nearly now, and many of them are unemployed. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's the recipe for further unrest there. King Abdullah is doing everything he can to quiet the situation, but there have been some deaths and wounded in this, uh, in the opposition to this um, a rebellion, and that's something to keep a very close eye on. Well, Iran, as you mentioned last time we spoke, was talking about uh, using both Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the south to try to figure out really what the security setup for the Israelis might be as it relates to the Iron Dome and uh, whatever way they may stop or endeavor to stop an attack from Iran with a nuclear weapon on the top, uh, a warhead on one of those Shahab-3 missiles coming into Israel. Do you think that uh, this is putting Iran in a better position to accomplish their ultimate goal of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, or has this put Israel in a better position? Well, again, the, the Iron Dome's performance was quite uh, phenomenal. Uh, it really outperformed what most experts believe. They were saying maybe 50% of incoming rockets to built-up areas could be intercepted successfully, but in fact it was 80%. However, having said that, it was just, just was enough, but just rockets coming in from Gaza. In a full war scenario, as you said, we would have Hezbollah involved. They've already said they would support Iran in any way possible. We'd have many, many more rockets coming in at any one time, since their arsenal is much, much larger, mostly supplied by Iran. We'd probably still have some coming in from Gaza, maybe some from Syria even, maybe some from rogue groups in the Sinai Peninsula. So, um, uh, in other words, we would, we would need far more um, Iron Dome anti-rockets than we now have. There's only five batteries. They were all deployed during this most recent conflict, and they performed well, but five batteries is not enough to protect both the northern border and the southern border and the eastern border. So they're working hard in Israel to produce more of those batteries. They're working night and day, actually. Uh, but um, the Iranians do know that they would certainly, in the initial phases, be able to get in quite a few rockets into Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and elsewhere. And the fear, Jimmy, always has been more than the long-range ballistic missiles that Iran possesses carrying a nuclear weapon. The fear is that one of these short-range rockets from Lebanon might contain a nuclear warhead that they might already have. They might have purchased it from the former Soviet Union, or Pakistan may have supplied it, North Korea, a more likely candidate to have supplied something like that that they may already have that capability, and the Iron Dome cannot detect which of these incoming rockets might be nuclear or chemically armed and which are conventionally armed. It doesn't have that capability. Of course, it just takes one rocket with even a small crude nuclear warhead uh, to potentially cause massive havoc in a city like Tel Aviv, and that is Israel's greatest nightmare. 
15 seconds, if you will, David. The Syrians have been responsible for the deaths of 40,000 of their people. It says a very interesting note from the former prime minister that Russia and Iran are controlling Syria. What are your thoughts? Well, Russia certainly has been backing Assad, and, yeah, the death toll is phenomenal. Uh, We have all these media reports over a family being killed in Gaza. Well, that was tragic. Israel didn't intend to hit that building. But look what the Syrian regime is doing to its own people, 40,000 people dead. It's just uh, unbelievable, and uh, the world is just sort of sitting by, again, because Russia and China are backing them, and we're not. uh, We have the potential for a major regional conflict at least if we do so. So it goes on day by day, very sadly. Very sadly. David Dolan covering the Middle East for us with his Middle East News update. David, thank you so much. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll talk with Itamar Marcus. What are the Palestinians saying in their media? That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here for the next hour. We're at the bottom of the first half hour, 90 minutes every week of information that we present to you here on Prophecy Today, looking at current events in light of biblical prophecy. The ancient Jewish prophets had much to say about the times, I believe, in which we're living. We study them, and then we look at current events with that spotlight of what God's Word says about these events unfolding. But our broadcast partner is always standing by to assist us in doing that. One of uh, of the very dear friends of Prophecy Today, we so appreciate his work uh, with uh, the watch of a Palestinian media that is saying one thing to the Palestinian people and something thing else to the rest of the world. And that's why we bring Itamar Marcus to these microphones and uh, helping with his insight, you to understand, and me as well, to understand all these events that are happening. Itamar, a ceasefire between Hamas and Israelis this last week. I understand what the Israeli media is saying. I understand what the rest of the world is saying. Tell me what the Palestinian media is saying. Do they still, by the way, do they still have any Palestinian media there in the Gaza Strip? I know some airstrikes were going after the Palestinian media there. Well, the uh, Palestinian media is uh, is uh, strong. That is, it's, uh, its infrastructure is there, and they'll continue broadcasting, and they have and they have backups as well. And uh, Israel really didn't want to destroy the whole media. I think they were more uh, 
symbolic attacks because the the world is interested in having a, a free free press, even if the free press is inciting to uh, genocide and murder like the Hamas uh, press is doing in the Hamas television, but the world wants them to have their free media. Uh, so Israel intentionally didn't destroy all of the infrastructure of the media. The, um, the Hamas media is presenting this as an absolute victory over Israel, uh, but beyond that, they, the very next day, the very next day, the first day of the ceasefire, they were already calling for the killing of Jews on uh, on Hamas television. So the the media, the 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 officials might have signed a ceasefire because Hamas needed a break, but they were already getting their people ready, uh, intellectually uh, indoctrinating them for the next round by already calling for the killing of Jews. Well, and is that not a philosophy that dates back all the way to the time of Muhammad? Uh, you call a ceasefire, you regroup, and uh, you re-engage with the enemy, and you try to wipe them out ultimately. Does that not play throughout all of the Palestinian and Arab world? Well, the, uh, in, the, in the time of Muhammad, uh, it, it's uh, very well known amongst, uh, amongst the Muslim world and seen as a precedent when uh, Muhammad went back from Medina to Mecca, he, he approached the city and wasn't strong enough to, to take it. So he signed with the Quraysh tribe, he signed a 10-year peace treaty. And then after two years, uh, when he felt he was strong enough at that point, he then went and took the city. So that the, the, the peace treaty, known as the Hudaybiyah Agreement, because it was signed in the town of Hudaybiyah, just outside of Mecca, uh, it seems a precedent for Muslim forces uh, making an agreement with the enemy so that you can regroup and strengthen, and then, uh, and then when you are ready, going back to fight is seen as a legitimate tactic because it's the same thing that Muhammad did. And there's no doubt that the Hamas sees this now as a pause. Anyone who thinks that Hamas sees this as the end of hostilities between, between them and Israel is just living in a... In the fantasy world, the, I don't think the Israeli government, certainly, the, certainly no one in Israel sees it as the end of hostilities. Uh, I would hope that the Americans uh, understand that the Hamas does not see it as the end, but sees it as a respite for them to regroup. I hope the American administration understands that. What about uh, what's the Palestinian media saying about President Morsi of Egypt and his role in this ceasefire? Are they happy about that? Are they concerned, or are they claiming uh, the victory in this ceasefire? Well, they're not going to. The, the the Hamas isn't going to focus on any of the outsiders. Uh, Morsi, of course, is a friend of theirs because Morsi is uh, mem- is a Muslim Brotherhood uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood party, and Hamas is the Palestine branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So there's a very strong identification uh, between them. Uh, Morsi did what he did in brokering this because he wants the, the world, especially the United States, who he's hoping to get a lot of money from, he wants, he wants to be perceived amongst them as a, as a peacemaker. And Morsi himself is not interested in uh, going to fight uh, Israel now. The Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt has and in general, the Egyptian economy and military is in no condition to, to lead any fight against Israel. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood ideology is very explicit about the fact that you can't start a jihad against the enemy until, you, until the timing is right and that you have to spend the current time uh, regrouping. So, so Morsi would certainly follow that ideology. 
uh, and Hamas is using the identical, identical ideology right now, regrouping until a time when they feel they would be able to defeat Israel. Meanwhile, uh, the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is there in Ramallah just watching from afar down in the Gaza Strip. Was Abbas really, uh, you know, no f- factor in all that happened? And how's he going to move forward with the, uh, you know, going to the United Nations and try to put in place uh, the Palestinian statehood? And then I've read some articles that are indicating that Hamas and Fatah, the two factions, uh, the Fatah organization headed up by Mahmoud Abbas, are they going to try to get together? What does that look like in the future for the Palestinians as it relates to statehood and unity? Well, there are separate issues, really. The, um, the statehood bid was unilateral, certainly not coordinated with, with the Hamas. And uh, that the only thing that could really stop Abbas from doing that it would be tremendous international pressure and, and, the, and the message, the clear message that he would stop receiving uh, financial aid from the West if he did that. Um, if, if, uh, so that, that's the only possibility for the statehood bid. He, he sees the statehood bid as a critical step to uh, essentially undermining Israel. He, if he has a majority of states in the United Nations, even if it's only a partial state, what's called a non-member state or an observer state, as long as they recognize his state that he wants, on the 67 borders, that means that Jerusalem, uh, the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, all of that is officially recognized by a majority of United Nations states as, as part of a Palestinian state, even if it's not a member of the United Nations. So that's what he wants. He wants to use that as a, like a, a halfway step toward having the world recognize the 67 borders. Now, the, the real danger with that is that he, he has told his people that they have a right to, quote, resist mean to kill Israelis, including civilians, anywhere that is occupied. Uh, he sometimes tells them that the timing is not right, but he will then be able to tell his people, okay, it's legitimate to kill every man, woman, child in Jerusalem that's uh, uh, in, in the old city, praying at the, at the Western Wall, because it's officially recognized as occupied territory. So this is his ploy. He wants to tell not just his people, but he wants to justify it internationally. Uh, when there is terror in the future, well, don't don't you know? Don't complain about terror. The Israelis are occupying uh, Jerusalem, so that's his ploy. He's going to go ahead with it. I think he's going to go ahead with it. Like I said, the only ones who can stop it are the United States and the Western Europeans, if they make it explicitly clear that they will cut off all funding and all diplomatic uh, initiatives with the PA. Uh, so really, the ball I would say now is in the American court. Inamar, thank you so very much for joining us today. We so appreciate this insight. It helps all of us that uh, have an opportunity to hear the interview to understand really what is going on. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Nice talking to you. Bye. Inamar Marcus, you know, as he and his team watch the Palestinian media, it is key so that we can understand really what they're talking about, what they're saying to their own people. We, uh, I promised earlier, we're going to be talking with Winky Madad. Winky has a long background in uh, not only the political arena, he was a key player with uh, one of the members of the Knesset for a number of years, 
but he watched the Israeli media. They had a watch operation organization as well. Not the, the Palestinians, but uh, what the Israelis were saying. He's on top of it. He's an journalist somewhat today. He writes a lot of opinion pieces for the Jerusalem Post as well. And I wanted to just uh, sit and chat a few moments with Winky Madad about this whole ceasefire situation. Winky, thank you for being available for us today. Jimmy, it's always a pleasure to be with you and the listeners. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, talk to me. You're first of all over your impression overall of actually what did take place in this ceasefire between the Israelis and Hamas. I know there's opinions on both sides. We've talked uh, earlier with Itamar Marcus about what the Palestinians are saying. Uh, give me your overall thirts, uh, thoughts first blush. Well, Jimmy, um, it's very hard to uh, explain <laughs> to outsiders uh, the situation because most people that I've met around the world or have come to Israel from around the world, people are interested uh, honestly in, in sort of objectively learning about the situation, have a fundamental uh, handicap. Uh, most of us think rationally uh, and while we might be passionate in our arguments and debating, it's usually based on some sort of logical uh, thread of thought. And this does not exist between Israel and Arabs who reject uh, Jewish nationalism, deny the temple in Jerusalem, and refuse to negotiate honestly for any peace, and prefer to engage in terror. Now, that's an introduction to just a short thing I want to say now. Terror needs terrorists, those people who carry it on. If Israel by itself or Israel with the world or with the world interfering in what Israel is doing cannot somehow, with a minimal loss of life, convince uh, people who want to get engaged in terror that it's not worth their while, both diplomatically or physically, in terms of possible death to them or their near ones, then any military operation is not going to win out. And this is what we saw this past week and a half. If they can convince themselves again that they have won, if they have victory parades, if they continue immediately with the tunnels, I understand that just, yet, uh, just uh, recently, uh, within hours after the ceasefire came into effect, uh, they were at it again in the tunnels and there was a collapse and someone died, then Israel is always going to be faced with an additional operation of this type, and it's not very good. Yes, it's certainly not going to be very good. Uh, people are saying on both sides of the political spectrum there in Israel, I'm talking about Israelis now, uh, that Netanyahu was a, a brilliant statistician, but on the other side, many of them are saying he made a terrible mistake that the ground operation should have moved ahead. What are your thoughts? And give us some insight. Well, when people uh, talk about ground operations uh, and they're not interested in Israel's security, uh, they will sort of convince other people of the danger involved both to local population, basically civilian, and to uh, the deaths possible of Israeli soldiers. Uh, we like to think ourselves as a moral people, Jimmy, but sometimes we get overexcited uh, over-enthused about our high moral position. 
when it comes, as has been developed over the past few years, from the Second Lebanon War, the caste-led uh, operation, and now uh, this uh, pillar, cloud pillar operation called Pillar of Defense, uh, I think you might agree with me, Jimmy, that the message coming out is the life of one Israeli soldier is worth about 10 civilians, and it's better civilians suffer than the soldiers, which, as anybody who's been in the Army knows, once you swear allegiance and you want to fight, you have to take that dangerous course uh, in order to protect the civilians behind you, not the other way. So what's developed here in Israel is we can't solve any military situation. Forget about the diplomatic, political uh, situation or cultural, religious situation. We're stuck at a point where we're threatened uh, that, that even an operation, for example, a limited one, of cutting off the Philadelphia Corridor, which is in the South Gaza Strip, much less populated civilian-wise than Gaza City or, or other places, that should have been in place in order to force Egypt to really control the tunnels, because we're going to do it until they, were perhaps with international supervision of Egypt, not of Israel, will control the import of missiles and rockets. Yeah. You know, it's some tough decisions made uh, as it relates to the whole situation. What about the United States? What part did they really play? I know that uh, President Obama uh, sent Hillary Clinton in to go to Jerusalem, to Ramallah, and then over to Cairo. Uh, did they have a key role, or was it basically the Egyptians? Well, I don't know, because I'm not privy to the diplomatic uh, conversation. It could have been that Mr. Obama and Hillary Clinton said, we're with you all the way, uh, and therefore we will help Egypt, uh, and this is for the betterment of everybody. It could have been that Obama said, uh, you have our support at the present, but when you look around to us for resupplies from the emergency stores and warehouses that we've maintained for you, you're going to find them empty. Or uh, I will not support... Um, or let's put it this way, I will not uh, oppose a Palestinian appeal to the United Nations for statehood. This could have been backtracked diplomatic language that I don't know about and may have uh, forced uh, Mr. Netanyahu's hand on this. Um, uh, it's very difficult to tell. It's obvious, though, that Mr. Netanyahu did not stand up to the two pressures forced upon him. That from media talk about loss of soldiers' lives in a military operation, and diplomatic, shall we say, conversation with America specifically and other uh, representatives from the EU that we will not know about for a few years. Well, when you watch this whole situation developing, it's it really, if anybody is thinking about Hamas being a terrorist organization, they're at the southern end of the state of Israel continually firing these rockets over. It's evident, is it not? If God does not intercede, Israel's going to have to go in and finish off Hamas ultimately. It's not a question of finishing off Hamas. I still believe that we have a slight possibility of convincing the Arab masses in Gaza that they have a better option, and that is making peace with Israel rather than continuing the resistance. I say that even though, personally, I have extreme doubts about the masses being able to divorce themselves 
from the religious indoctrination that they're getting of a very jihadist Islamic type. But we saw the Arab Spring, and although I was very critical about Western support for this because I saw, and I think we spoke together, Jimmy, on this before it happened, that the only politically organized force are the most extreme Muslim Brotherhood type of organizations, and therefore blindly supporting an Arab Spring is in trouble, the very fact that there were these type of demonstrations means that if you work hard, perhaps you can make an outreach. And in that also, you use religion, both Islam and Christianity and Judaism, for a vision of a better future for the humanity of a person who is it feels himself occupied, feels himself subjected, and can get out of this situation and make for himself a better life with a coexistence with those people who also have rights around them, whether it's the Jews in Israel or the cops, cop Christians in, in Egypt or uh, Iraqi uh, Catholics or Protestants in, in, in Lebanon. Uh, we all have to work together for a better future for this and leave all the fighting behind. Winky Madad, with his analysis of the ceasefire between the Israelis and Hamas in particular, but the Palestinians overall. Winky, thank you so very much for this insight. Appreciate it. We'll talk again down the line. Jimmy, thank you, and our listeners. You know, very interesting analysis by Winky Madad. He has... Much experience in the political arena. Of course, he's been watching the media. He was in charge of the media watching operation over the Israeli media. And with all of his knowledge, it's great to hear what he has to say about the whole situation. Well, when we want to know what's going on in Europe, we turn to one man. His name is Dr. Rob Congdon. He's been traveling all over the countryside for Thanksgiving. Hey, Rob, did you have a good Thanksgiving with your girls, uh, separated by Michigan and Illinois? Yes, we did. Just a lot of traveling, and it's awfully cold up north, so we're trying to adjust to the cold again. Well, I understand. It was about uh, 35 in Tallahassee, where I am this morning, but uh, supposed to warm up a little bit later today. We've been talking with other broadcast partners about the situation as it relates to uh, the Gaza crisis. Now, the ceasefire seems to be holding at this point in time. But uh, tell me what the European Union thought about uh, the Gaza operation. Well, as so often is typical with Europeans, too, they have mixed feelings. Uh, They want peace. They want things quiet down there. They have a strong historic interest in the area, so they want it. They they lean toward Israel. They understand the panic of, uh, especially in countries uh, that remember, can still remember World War II, they understand the panic of missiles and, and weapons being and rockets being fired into their lands. So they're very sympathetic to the Israelis in that aspect. On the other hand, they're very sympathetic because their news media has convinced them that Gaza is also victims in this situation, and so they want to try to help both sides. Uh, Europeans as a whole tend to be very humanitarian-oriented, and so that's why they want to be involved. That's why they want representatives down there working to bring about peace and and get ceasefires that will hold. So uh, their hearts very much are involved in it and caring about it. Interesting to me that Tony Blair, who's the peace envoy for the United States, European Union, United Nations, and Russia, the quartet, 
he was involved in the talks that, that were uh, trying to come together for a ceasefire. He's still trying to keep his position in that role as the peace envoy for the quartet. Oh, very much so. And in fact, uh, what always impresses me, and, and it does impress me about Tony Blair, he tends not to be the one who wants to just be in the the limelight in terms of what he's now doing. And so what you have to do is you have to dig a little bit to find out what he's doing. He's he's following actually a procedure that within the European Union works brilliantly. They like diplomats that aren't out front trying to be in the photographic scene but are willing to quietly negotiate. And then when there's something to say or somebody finds out what they've been doing, they do write about it in the, in the media. That's okay. And Tony Blair has been kind of behind scenes doing it, and in the long run, for his perhaps political future, that will be really respected by many in Europe. So I think he's taking a very interesting course. In addition, I think he is trying to help bring some more peace and ceasefire stability that they need there in the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned his political future. We're going to continue to watch that. He would love, of course, to be president of uh, the European Union. And this may be part of the project step-by-step that he needs to follow. Let's change the focus uh, to uh, Brussels, Belgium, the European Union Budget Summit. What is it and why is it taking place? Okay, well, it's it's like any other government. They have a budget that each year they have to budget their uh, monies. The European Union is financed largely by what we would call in America the sales tax. Uh, down the line, they would like to look at income tax also. But they are forming a budget, and what the budget does is not only what the money to come in, but how they're going to spend it and significantly what countries will get specific funds. And uh, so there's always a lot of arguing. There's a major issue about raising the budget this year because Europe is in a recession. They don't want to see the budgets increase too much. Certain countries like France and Poland are doing very well because these are, these are major economic powers in the European Union, and they are going to see to it that they get what their people back home uh, most need. France is always worried about the farmers, and so they're going to protect them. So several compromises are occurring right now, and so it's, in a sense, a tense situation resolving it, but not too much publicity about it. And so everybody's watching it because it could affect, again, the financial status of Europe. Uh, if there's too big of increase, too much money to one country versus another, uh, those old squabbles between nations grow, and the EU's purpose is to eliminate squabbles between their nations. Of course, the economics of the European Union plays a key role in ultimately uh, solidifying the unity of all of these 27 member states, does it not? Oh, absolutely, and and that is what I keep stressing, is they, they want complete, uh, a fully uh, cohesive European Union, the goal is to get rid of the national designations. And the budget, unfortunately, forces them to say, well, we'll help this particular nation more than another. But always remember, the European Union system is basically a socialistic system. So they are willing to help the poor, less powerful countries, but they always have to do it in a way that uh, other countries don't react and feel that it's one-sided. So it, it's a, a tightrope they walk, but the goal is to see that all are treated fairly 
and equally and to maintain peace in Europe above all. Yes, and uh, ultimately to, to form that uh, empire that we often talk about. Oh, absolutely. That's always in the forefront. That's always the direction it is going. And um, they seem to have been doing it for 50 years, but they're moving quicker and quicker to what they really dream of. So we, we need to keep an eye on it now. Yes, I think for sure that's going to be the case. Well, quickly, if we can, one final thought. European Union diplomats, headed up by Catherine Ashton, who's the chief of foreign policy for the EU, uh, they're aiming to pull together another type of uh, nuclear talks with Iran sometime in, de- uh, sometime in December. Is that going to really accomplish anything? Will they move forward or still stay in status quo? Well, my opinion is going to result in status quo, but that's an opinion and not based on any substantial information. The important thing that I see in this whole matter is it is the European Union and its foreign policy person, Catherine Ashton, who is going to be the significant person in the talks with Iran. And that suggests that instead of the U.S. being involved, it is Europe that is really calling the direction that should be followed at this point. So. We need to watch the EU. They are a major power in world affairs today. Wow. The European Union, a major power in world affairs today and tomorrow. The revival of that Roman Empire. Dr. Rob Congdon brings so much information to the table that is so very important to us that we may be able to see how things are unfolding in our world, preparing the way for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Rob, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk again next week. We'll look forward to it. Lord bless. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Rob. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Jim Jr. will join me here in the studio. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Here in Tallahassee, Florida, got together with the family, everybody coming in for Thanksgiving. What a wonderful time it was. Hope you had a similar type of great opportunity to get with your family this last Thanksgiving as well. Well, uh, because of that, Jim Jr. is here in the studio with me, the temporary studios that we have set up here in Tallahassee, Florida. We're going to have a conversation and a few questions that you have sent in to us here at Prophecy Today. We'll see if we can get you some answers for those here in just a moment. Let me give you our poll question, one of the Real neat opportunities we have with our website is being able to determine what your thinking is. I teach the prophetic word of God. Jim does the same thing, traveling across the country, around the world. And, in fact, he's going to be taking off, I think, in just about a week to go over to Romania. I need to ask him about that. Uh, But in addition to that, we have our radio, we have our television, we have the website. And we endeavor to try to teach what the Bible says about the end of times. And so we gauge what you may be thinking with our poll question. Here it is for today. By the way, you can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Scroll down on the left-hand side of the home page. There you'll find the poll question. Here's the question for this week. Even though there is a ceasefire in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as of today, in a future tomorrow, Bible prophecy reveals in Malachi chapter 1, Ezekiel 35 and the little book of Obadiah, that the Lord will intercede to destroy the Palestinian people and fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. 
Could the recent Gaza military operation be setting the stage for these prophecies to be fulfilled? Go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and you'll be able to respond to that particular question. I want to remind you, as I've already told you in the broadcast, Northwoods Baptist Church is where we're going to be ministering tomorrow, right here in Tallahassee. It's on Capitol Circle. We'll be there at 10, 1045 in the morning. And then at 6 o'clock, Prophecy Q&A, and at 7, a final message. We'd love to have you come and join us, study the prophetic word of God. That's Northwoods Baptist Church on Capitol Circle. Well, Jim, uh, what a joy it has been, really, to be together with you and your two precious little daughters, Haley and, and Abby, and to just watch the entire family, the Thanksgiving Day and then bowling last night. <laughs> what a time. You know, I remember, Dad, since we were kids, we have been coming here, and now we're the old ones. <laughs> and uh, it's so great to bring my girls and our family over here to be with you, to, to be a part of the Thanksgiving festivities. I believe family is key, especially in the days in which we're living. We need to love family. We need to encourage the family. And I was watching some in the bowling last night. You know, some might say, hey, that's a frivolous thing to do. Well, it was neat to watch the young ones and the older ones, uh, except for the real old ones. Mom and I, we stood and watched. But to watch you guys out there and having fellowship together, those are special times in our lives. We need to take time to do things like this, don't we? We sure do, Dad. And that's a great thing about being a part. You know, there's a legacy that's been set. Uh, our grandmother established this this tradition of getting together on Thanksgiving. We've been doing this, again, like I said, since I was a little kid. That's almost 40, 50 years we've been doing this time where we get together. And, you know, you're, you're not seeing that so much anymore where people take the time to get together. So it's a, it's a great time of fellowship and just remembering what uh, and being thankful for what God has given us. Yeah, a lot of people around this country on Thanksgiving Day went to Walmarts to celebrate. I don't know why in the world that would be important. Well, uh, maybe for the Christmas presents later down the line. And how many times Granny was mentioned over our time of uh, sweet fellowship together. Hey, I just brought up a moment ago, you and Rick are off to Romania pretty quickly. What's that all about? Dad, we uh, are, have been working in Central Europe with a mission organization called Life with Eric Murphy. Uh, we've been doing our sports camps there. We've had some, and, and you've, you've, we've uh, talked about our reports that we've had from Montenegro. We're going to be looking at a camp in France that wants us to come and do this using sports as a vehicle for evangelization. Well, now in Timisoara, Romania, where the revolution started, where the Romanians overthrow the communist government, uh, we're doing a Bible prophecy conference there, the first one in this area. About 100 pastors are coming together and lay people that are involved in churches there. So we're going to be doing, I think I'm speaking 11 times in three days. And you know how that works in those countries. They have no other place to go. They want to be there and study God's Word. This is not a, a quickie, you know, 20-minute in-and-out type of service and get going. They want to study God's Word, and we're teaching Bible prophecy there. Boy, this is thrilling to Judy and me because of the fact that uh, I guess it was probably 25 years ago we first went into Romania. And now, and, and, and there was a big church that I spoke at, and they were amillennial. They didn't believe in the millennial kingdom to come. They had a school, and they asked me to come back and speak. 
my schedule has never given me that opportunity. But now our two sons going to Romania, ministering to these pastors. And Jim, you've got to realize, buddy, that's going to spread your ministry across the countryside. Uh, those pastors are going to take those messages and go back and teach your people. Well, that is great. Now, we have just returned. I want to update everybody on this. We've just returned from a sojourn in Rome, Italy. You were first with the tour group in Israel. I dropped in for a couple of days. It about killed me, man, trying to get in and out of there. Then over to Rome. We took the cruise. That was more relaxing. Got back to Rome. You were there, having traveled in from Jerusalem. And we did a documentary on the rebuilding, excuse me, on the revival of the Roman Empire and how the false church in Revelation chapter 17 plays into that. Uh, This is looking to me like it's going to be another outstanding documentary that you're producing. It sure is, Dad. You know, I'm, I'm not one that sees the devil and everything. But I do know that this is an important subject, and we are in an important area about uh, future events that are to come. And we really did come up against opposition. Uh, we had the Hurricane Sandy that came into play. We've had we had problems with our television equipment, our our, our cameras. But uh, you even had a problem with your knee. Uh, but you know what? We we went through and we we uh, we got into places. We had the backup plans, and I'm really excited about this new project that we're working on. Hey, what about uh, the project Return to Eden? Talking about a documentary on the relocation of uh, the the Garden of Eden out of times past. Where are you? Just about finished on that one, aren't you? We really are. As soon as I can get Rick to San Antonio, we'll do our final wrap-up on it, and uh, it'll be available for people to purchase. Well, we'll make all of this information available to you right here on our website, prophecytoday.com. Let you know when these two outstanding productions, and the reason I say outstanding, it's not necessarily that Jim in his production capabilities and me having the privilege to speak and teach on each of these documentaries are so, is so good, but the information is so important. That's why we want you to have a copy of it. Now, before we get to the question you have from one of our listeners, let me remind everybody, Jim Jr. has his own Prophecy Q&A program. It's on our Internet radio station, Prophecy Today Radio. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and right there on the home page, you'll see the icon. You can go there every Thursday at 7 p.m. East Coast time. Uh, Jimmy hosts a Prophecy Q&A time. Once in a while, I can visit if he can catch me, but most of the time he doesn't, and he's qualified to do it. So make sure you don't miss that. 7 p.m. on Thursdays at our radio station on the Internet, Prophecy Today Radio. Let's get to some of the questions in the short time we have left uh, before we run out of time, and I do a prophecy look at the book, but what are some of the questions? Mark Dorenzik sends in a question. He says, I've been wondering for quite some time if the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation 7-4 are the same people mentioned in Revelation 14-1. I enjoy your ministry very much, and there is not a day that goes by that I do not play at least one of your BBN, Q&A, or audio CD teachings. What a blessing you have been to me. Hey, Mark, that is very kind. Thank you so much, buddy. Well, they are the same, in fact. Over in Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 4 through verse 8, you'll see that the 12 tribes of Israel are listed. And then John the Revelator wrote out that each of the 12 tribes will have 12,000 people. That's 144,000 
male virgin Jews. Now we get that information from Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. Uh, when the Lord gives that vision there in chapter 14, chapter 14 of Revelation is a vision. It's a vision of the 144,000. It's a vision of the everlasting judgment that will be pronounced by the angel. It's a vision of the time at the battle of Armageddon, etc. But it gives us the information. These are 144,000 male virgin Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, that there will be the preaching of the gospel, and then the end will come. Now, that verse in Matthew is talking about the seven-year tribulation period. And back in chapter 7 of Revelation, in verse 3, it says, these 144,000 will have a seal of protection on their forehead. They'll be able to preach for a seven-year period of time. And then chapter 7 and verse 9 says, a multitude that no man could number, a multitude of people will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Mark chapter 7 of Revelation, chapter 14, at least the first six verses of chapter 14, are dealing with 144,000 that will have that unbelievable ministry. It'll be the greatest evangelism campaign ever to take place in the history of the world. It will be worldwide. Everybody will hear the gospel of the kingdom and have an opportunity to either receive Jesus Christ or reject him. But may I just make this suggestion, anybody eavesdropping on the conversation, if you're not saved, don't wait to that time. It's going to be a very tough time in history to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. There will be people who can do it. But my suggestion is come to know Jesus Christ right now. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died was buried and resurrected from the dead to give you salvation and then call upon him to save you. See, told you it's as simple as ABC. A, admit, B, believe, C, call. Be sure to do that. But Mark, thank you for listening. Thank you for your fine comments. And uh, thank you for the question. It was great. Gary Stevens sends in a question. Dear Jimmy and team, I have a question. I'm looking for a verse or verses that tell us that the day will come when Israel will be abandoned by all nations and the end will, will be near. I have heard that for years, but in my reading, I don't recall having seen it. Am I wrong to believe that such a verse or verses exist? Thank you for your help. Well, Gary, let me just say this, that uh, there is a time throughout the seven-year period of time, basically, when they're trying to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. That would be Israel. At the beginning, you have Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And that's when the alignment of the nations come and try to destroy the Jewish people, the land of Israel, the people in this Jewish state. They do everything they possibly can. The Lord Jesus intercedes, wipes out that attacking enemy. That's chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4. And then at the midway point of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17, you see that there's a battle in the heavenlies between the evil angels and the good angels. God tells Michael, the chief of the good angels, the archangel, to throw Satan and his evil angels down to the earth, and they'll have, never have an opportunity to go back into the heavenlies. But the Bible tells us in chapter 12, verses 13 and 17, that when these evil angels get down to the earth under the leadership of Satan, they do everything to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. The reason for that, of course, is that if indeed you can wipe all the Jews out, 
then God cannot fulfill his promises to them. Satan becomes the victor, and that's exactly what Satan wants to do. Of course, then at the end, you have the Battle of Armageddon, and really it should be called the Campaign of Armageddon. The reason I say that is all the nations of the world are going to gather at Jerusalem. That's the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter uh, 14 and verse 2. They'll gather there at the city of Jerusalem and try to, as they await the return of Jesus Christ, they're going to try to stop him, but they're going to try to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth again. And so it's going to be a campaign throughout the seven-year period of time of trying to rid the Jewish people from this earth. That has to put all those verses together, Gary, to come to the understanding of what we're talking about there. Appreciate that uh, letter, Gary and Mark. And I think, Jim, uh, looking at the clock on the wall, that's an old radio saying, buddy. <laughs> looking at the clock on the wall, it's about to, to tell us we've got to get out here and make way for me to take a look at the book. Thanks for joining us, Jim. You guys have a safe journey back to San Antonio. Thank you, Des. It's been so great being with you. We'll take a break. When we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. <laughs> In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we have discussed the ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinians in the conflict that has unfolded over the last week there in the Gaza Strip. Our broadcast partners brought to these microphones information that helps each and every one of us to understand what has been and is going on in the Gaza Strip and this crisis. Our broadcast partners have looked at the conflict 
and then the ceasefire agreement and offered up an explanation of how and why the ceasefire came into existence. We had two segments with David Dolan. David talked to us in the first segment about the ceasefire and the ramifications of it and those who are pro and con the ceasefire and what the Palestinians are thinking about it and the part that the United States played in it. Uh, There are two peoples in that part of the world who want one piece of real estate, and that has to be factored into any discussion and thought process about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Winky Madad was very helpful as he looked at the mindset of the Israelis and how the Palestinians have reacted to the Israeli plan and to the ceasefire and what did unfold. But he also gave us some great insight into the body politic of the Jewish people of the state of Israel. Inamar Marcus came to these microphones and revealed the true statements from the Palestinian people. In their media, they are claiming a victory. Now, this is a propaganda ploy. We must understand this. This is a great service to the world from the Palestinian media watch people because they help us to understand really what the Palestinian people are saying. Dr. Rob Congdon, who covers the European Union for us, he helped us to understand their mindset as well. The European Union wants peace, and uh, they stand afar sometimes, don't get much involved in what's happening. Uh, But they are very important to watch because they will play a key role in the end times. I believe the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. And if you study Bible prophecy, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapters 13 and 17, you'll realize how the revived Roman Empire is going to be so important in the end of time scenario found in God's Word. In fact, when I had my conversation with Jim Jr., Uh, We somewhat announced a new documentary coming on the scene. We'll have it available here on our website, prophecytoday.com. And that'll be a documentary on the revival of the Roman Empire and how religion, the false religion of the world, as prophesied in the book of Revelation chapter 17, how religion will play a key role in that as well. We had a little bit of Q&A with Jim, so you can uh, go to our website. You can listen to all of these conversations at uh, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. It's located at our website, prophecytoday.com. Go there, re-listen if you need to, kind of refresh your thinking, and be sure to tell a friend. Pass along this information to a friend where they can find the conversations that we archive on our website, it's PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. It's radio when you want it, when it's convenient for you to be able to listen to. Well, all of our broadcast partners brought to our attention the political look at what has been unfolding there in Israel. The world has been watching it. We are now analyzing this ceasefire situation. Our broadcast partners did an effective job on doing that. Again, go to our website and listen to them and tell a friend that they can listen as well. Just reminding you, last week we traced from Esau to the Palestinian people of today. You want to know who these people are? The Bible has prophesied in the past they would come back to power. They would be a major player in the end-of-time scenario that's found in God's Word. Now, we did that last week. We traced all of that through, and I may give you a quick resume on that in a moment. But I want to take a focus on our Bible and see what it says, the prophetic passages uh, that refer to this particular situation. When you go to the book of Malachi, chapter 1, 
The Bible is teaching us that the Lord will hate the Edomites and love the Jews, the descendants of Jacob. Now, this is not an emotional experience that's going to take place. In fact, over in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, uh, Paul talks about that, and he says, look, you go back up in that chapter just a bit, it says, before these boys were even born, in the sovereign will of God, the Lord chose one over the other, and it, in fact, went against tradition. The elder was supposed to receive not only the birthright, but the blessing from the father. Well, that was reversed in the lives of these two twins, Esau and Jacob. Malachi chapter 1 refers to that. The Palestinians, the Edomites of yesteryear of Bible times, the Bible says in Malachi 1 will return. They will rebuild. They'll set up their borders. And the Lord says those borders will be the borders of wickedness. He's going to reject the Edomites. In Ezekiel chapter 35, in verse 5, well, in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, he talks about a judgment against Mount Seir. Remember, God sent Esau to Mount Seir, the lower third of modern-day Jordan, to a place called Petra. That's where the Edomites set up their headquarters. In fact, that geographical location was changed to Edom because that's where the Edomites, under Esau, their founder, went to, to live. But the book of Ezekiel, chapter 35, is a prophecy about the last days. In verse 5, it says they're going to be judged because they're going to kill the Jewish people. And verse 10 says, because then they will try to take the land, and that is blasphemy against God. So Ezekiel 35, looking in the future for the Palestinians, says because you kill the Jews, because you take their land, you're going to be judged. You're going to be as if you have never been. Now, remember, I traced from Esau to the Palestinian people today, so you have to Remember that in order to understand how all of these prophecies will play out. Little book of Obadiah it gives us the prophecy of the final solution, the resolution for this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In verses 15 to 18, it says that the Palestinians will control the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem. They do that today. Uh, they're the custodians of the Temple Mount, so set up by the Israeli government in 1967. But indeed, uh, Obadiah says you kill the Jews and you take their land, so you're going to be judged. The Lord will intercede at the end of times. He wipes out the Palestinian people as if they have never been. Then he fulfills all of his promises to the Jewish people. Now, let me just warn you, I am not trying to choose sides between the Jews, the Israelis, or the Palestinians, the Edomites, of the Bible times and in today's activities. I'm simply reading and teaching from the prophetic word of God. And if you understand that, you'll realize we're at that time when the next event, the very next event is going to take place. That's the rapture. And the rapture can happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.